We're going to be in Matthew chapter eight, uh, 28 this morning. If you uh, have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Uh, as we just sang together, this Jesus Christ that we have been praising uh, is risen. He's not rotting in a tomb somewhere. He is with us this morning. And today we celebrate, of course, the single greatest event in all of history, His resurrection from the dead. Now, if we were in a different part of the world, if we were in Boston or New York or Seattle or maybe in a different country like Germany or France, what we may do is spend our time sort of establishing the validity of the resurrection. How do we know this really happened? How do we know this was a true thing? But here in North Alabama, uh, I don't think we have as many people questioning the legitimacy of the resurrection. Uh, but we do have people, of course, naturally asking, okay, so what? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for my life? What does that mean for our world? And this morning, uh, we're going to look at the resurrection kind of from that angle. We're going to look at three effects of the resurrection. Uh, The renewal of creation, the reversal of time, and the removal of fear. So the renewal of creation, the reversal of time, and the removal of fear. A few years ago, there was a pastor uh, from just north of here, as I understand it, who took a trip with his wife to Italy. This is something they've been planning for a long time, but you know how these vacations go. You plan them and other things come up and they kind of uh, cause you to delay them. Well, finally, they were able to go to Italy together, as they had been thinking about for many years. And they go and they do, they do all the touristy things. They, they, uh, they saw the, the Colosseum at Rome. They saw St. Peter's Basilica and They saw the Sistine Chapel and took a gondola down one of the waterways in Venice, and they just had a great time. Well, on one of the down days, they're walking along, and they notice they're walking alongside a cemetery. And just from a distance, they could tell that it had some of the most ornate uh, headstones that they had ever seen. So they decided they would venture in and kind of see what this was all about. Well, they stumbled upon a gravesite of a man who died centuries before, and They could tell just by looking at the gravesite, this was no follower of Jesus. He made no claims to be a follower of Jesus, but he did have what you might call some existential concerns about whether this is all true. Maybe this could all be true. Surprisingly, and and his was the only grave in the cemetery like this, but uh, he had arranged for a huge stone slab to be placed over his grave, so that he couldn't be raised from the dead, just in case this actually was a true thing. And on that stone slab, he'd gotten someone to engrave in thick letters, in thick letters, I do not want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. Well, evidently, when he was buried and his casket was lowered into the ground, an acorn fell into the ground along with it. If you've ever been at a graveside, when, when a, a, a casket's lowered into the ground on a windy day, you see, this is not at all uh, far-fetched. But an acorn had fallen into the ground along with the coffin. And a hundred years later, by the time this pastor and his wife uh, stumbled upon it, that acorn had grown into a towering oak tree, which split the concrete slab and was now, again, this majestic uh, tree. The pastor looked at his looked at the split stone and then said to his wife, if an acorn which has the power of biological life in it can split a slab of stone of that magnitude, what can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in a person's life? Now, we saw one evidence of that by Richard's beautiful testimony this morning, and we're going to consider it even further this morning. Christ's resurrection 
is the planting of the acorn of the living God that will burst through and bring life, healing, and restoration to every single corner of creation. The Apostle Paul alludes to this when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. So again, from the resurrection account, I want to look at three effects that we can count on because Christ himself was raised from the dead. Uh, Matthew 28, uh, let me read verses 1 through 10, which will really be our, our entire section this morning. The word of the Lord reads this way. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Now, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up, and they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, we don't have time uh, to look at the section that precedes us, all the verses ahead of this. But the reason the resurrection is such a really big deal is because Jesus actually, literally died. His, orga- his organs shut down, his body physically expired. You know, we confess in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus was crucified, died, and buried, but we often kind of rush past or gloss over that phrase, he died, as if it's not that important. But it's critically important because if he didn't really die, the resurrection would be a sham. But he did die. His heart stopped beating. His lungs failed, his brain stopped functioning. He really died, and his body was buried. Now, in the first century, during that day, burial was much different than it is today. They didn't put bodies in the ground. They didn't cremate. They didn't put bodies uh, in a coffin. They put the body of a deceased person into a cave, kind of the side of a hill, a tomb. And uh, sometimes the Romans would actually stack dead bodies on top of each other in order to to maximize space. Bodies would be wrapped in linen cloths and then covered in perfume and spices in order to keep the, uh, the odor from becoming overpowering. But in Jesus' case, his body was laid in a tomb all alone because Joseph of Arimathea, who uh, became one of the followers of Jesus, actually to great cost, he was a person of means, and he ended up, again, uh, going to Pilate, requesting the body of Jesus, taking Jesus' body and then laying it in a new tomb. And as was the custom, a stone was rolled in front of the cave in order to keep wild animals out and to make sure that the bodies were not defiled. And the stone, again, that was rolled, it was this huge, massive rock. But on that resurrection morning, when Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, arrived at the tomb, Jesus' body wasn't there. And there was someone sitting on the stone. Matthew tells us that an angel of the Lord had rolled back the stone. 
A few nights ago, Janine and I were watching the season finale of a, a show that we enjoy, and, and the heroine, the, the female lead in it, uh, dies in this episode. And when she dies, sort of on the, on the, the floor, the, the camera zooming in and just sort of lingering on her face, her eyes close, her body becomes motionless, and you see that her chest is not going up and down breathing. And then all of a sudden, the music starts to build, and the camera comes into this uncomfortably tight shot on her face, and then all of a sudden, her eyes open, and then she starts to move her face and her head, and then she, then she sits up and eventually kind of regathers herself, gains her composure, and walks out of the room. Now, this, this scene is played out, of course, in all kinds of movies and shows, and you've probably seen it yourself in one of your favorite movies. Well, none of the gospel writers give us any of the details about, G, about the resurrection itself. That is to say, what it was like in the moments when Jesus was brought to life. We're not told about Him sitting up. We're not told about His eyes reopening. We're not talk, told about him sort of unraveling the clothes you know, that were wrapped around him or maybe even trying to rub off some of the, uh, the strong perfume, the fragrance there. And I, I don't know about you, I'd love to have some of those details. I think it'd be fascinating to, to see, to visualize what it was like when Jesus first uh, was made alive again. But we do know that there was an earthquake, Matthew tells us, but that happened as the angel appeared, not as Jesus sat up. The, the earthquake is not a description of the resurrection event, but really more of the effect of the resurrection. Remember when Jesus died and his heart stopped and he, he gave up his spirit, the earth shook as well. And told Matthew 27 that even the rocks were split in two, this visible demonstration. Only that was because the creator of the earth was being buried within the earth that he made. But here, here we're told, this is a, there's another earthquake only this one bears witness to what is to come. The earthquake is meant to give us a preview of the sort of earth-shaking reversal in store for the entire world. Puritan theologian Matthew Henry writes, When Jesus died, the earth that received Him shook with fear. And now that He arose, the earth that resigned Him leaped for joy. So Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of the completion of, of God's mission to restore everything that's wrong with our world. Here's our first point this morning if you're taking notes. Our sin-cursed planet will be transformed into a sinless earth filled with endless beauty and unshakable perfection. I think one of the biggest challenges of, this, of COVID-19 has been the fact that many of the things that we love and, and have been looking forward to have either been canceled or, or kind of marked with uncertainty. So I'm talking about some of the biggest events in life, right? I mean, graduation, commencement ceremonies, and wedding ceremonies, and sporting events, and vacations, and international travel, all of those things have been either canceled or they've, they have an asterisk by them because we don't know if we're going to be able to do such things, at least the way that we had designed. Well, one of the things that's kind of bound up in the human heart, one of the things that we're really wired to do is to be forward-looking people. And so, in fact, we know this even from the time of the fall of Adam and Eve, ever since the fall of our first parents, whenever we go through difficulty or one of the, one of the chief motivators for persevering amid difficult times is to, to recognize something better is on the horizon. Something better is in store, has in store for us. Have you ever needed that reassurance? You know, you're 
Maybe you're in a really rough patch in your relationship or work, or maybe you have this nagging uh, injury or illness that won't go away, and you really need to know that there's something better on the other side, that, that what you're going through will not last forever. Well, here Matthew is alerting us to the reality that there is a cosmic renewal ahead. The physical resurrection reminds us that God cares not just about the spiritual world, but also the physical world. He cares about the physical world. He cares about this planet, and He intends to renew it so that it never bears the marks and the scars of sin again. Now, notice I said renew. I didn't say scratch and start over. All the prophecies in the Old Testament about peace and shalom and perfect justice and pure, the purest love and unfettered communion with God and all of these things find their fulfillment. They're realized not in some airy, nebulous spiritual realm where we just kind of float along in the clouds, but instead on a new earth, which will actually have all of the best of the old earth, only it will be without sin. So I believe there's going to be some continuity there. I believe that, I believe that we'll see the great smoky mountains on the new earth, the breathtaking game preserves of Kenya. Only the, an, the animals won't be dangerous. They won't, they won't pursue humans. The rock-cut architecture of Petra in Jordan. When Janine and I were there a couple of years ago, just looking up, just absolutely amazed. Like, how is this even possible? Augusta National Golf Club, I believe, will be on the new earth. The Himalayas. Now, some of them may, may ask, well, what about Disneyland, Disney World? Well, with apologies to my friends in Southern California and, and Florida, I don't know, but overpriced food and overcrowded walkways and eternal lines that never move, that sounds more like that other place to me uh, than the new earth. Um, but it's gonna be, there's going to be continuity. There's going to be beauty and glory. And, and some of the very things that we recognize on this earth, this earth, we'll see again. See, we've made a mess of our world by sin, rebellion, oppression, and injustice. But God intends to restore all of it to harmony, justice, and that Hebrew word shalom, perfect wholeness or peace. Now, how do we know for sure? Well, on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. God's, God's pledge to us that one day all things will be renewed. And God announced His Son's victory over the grave with an earthquake. The earthquake is an acorn on the resurrection day of Christ that will be fully realized when all creation will be renewed by the same power that God demonstrated in raising Jesus from the dead. Everything about creation will be renewed from the earth to our homes, to our bodies, to, to our, the topography of our land, all of it. Talk about something to look forward to. For those in Christ, they don't just get their homes back, but the home that they always dreamed of but could never afford. They don't just get their body back, but the body they've always wanted but never had. And I've done some time thinking about the new body, the new body on the new earth, and uh, what, the various hairstyles that I may try then. I may, I may do a mullet for a hundred years. I may get a perm. I don't know. I may try. Do people still get their hair feathered? I may try all kinds of things. Brand new bodies that are better than what we have now. The body we always wanted. The home we always wanted. The life. We don't just get our life back. We get the life we've always dreamed of. In fact, actually beyond our wildest dreams. 
We don't just get to see our mom or dad again if they were in Christ, but we get to spend time with them where time is actually not a thing anymore. We don't have to worry about abbreviated conversations or rushing to the next obligation. Now, speaking of time, there's, a, there's another aspect of renewal that we see here, and it's not immediately evident, but, but I love this. Notice in verse 1, we're told that the women approached the tomb on the first day of the week at dawn. It's on the first day of the week that they go to see the resurrected Jesus. They find the angel's announcement that he's not there, but he's risen just as he said. And here's the thing. Jesus gives no command, at least there's no indication in in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, where Jesus commanded His followers to start worshiping and gathering on the first day of the week. But this is what they do. We've been spending time in Acts. We've been there for three months. And you see in the New Testament that the followers of Christ began meeting on the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection. Now, this is something God's people have been doing for hundreds of years, hundreds of years actually meeting on the Sabbath. But now, instead of working all week to earn time to rest, they actually rest is actually given. You rest and then work. Rest is a gift. Work flows out of rest. We already have God's approval. We already have rest. Now we go to work. Here's our second point. In Christ, we find the ultimate rest. We work from God's unwavering approval, not for it. Now, prepositions matter, don't they? We work from God's approval, not for it. Every other religion in the world says the the, the opposite, the reverse. If you work enough, strive enough, serve enough, give enough, do enough, perform enough, prove yourself enough, then maybe you can gain the approval of the gods. Maybe you can have a moment, just a moment of rest. But the resurrection is God's stamp of approval that Jesus' cross work was enough. So Jesus died on the cross for our sins to satisfy the wrath of God rightly directed at us. And the resurrection is the receipt, so to speak, where God says, yeah, that payment in full is sufficient. I have received that payment. It is enough. Now, there's an ongoing trend, I think, in our day, and I was tracing this back. I think it probably goes back maybe 25 years with the kind of the advancement of technology, and that is this need to be productive at every moment. It's it's becoming very, very difficult to just be and not answer that text, respond to an email, post something on social media. And I'm, I'm, I'm regularly reminded by my family, about half the time respectfully, uh, Dad, why aren't you with us? You're not with us. Why are you on your phone? Why You don't have to answer that text right now. But there's a burden, there's a compulsion to always be doing. We feel the burden to constantly produce, to prove ourselves at work, in school, at church, at home with our families. But remember what Jesus said. He said, I've come. He says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. What Jesus says, in essence, is, I know how hard this life is. And I know that you have this this inner longing to be right with God. A longing you try to satisfy by doing more, working harder, making a name for yourself, succeeding in your business, showing other people that you're worthy, finding satisfaction in other things. But Jesus says, no, you can relax. It is finished. I've done it all. So you don't have to. 
Now, rest doesn't mean inactivity, but it means we no longer have to prove ourselves to God or anybody else. We no longer have to work our way to try to earn the approval of the gods. What Jesus says is, my resurrection is the receipt, so to speak, that says that my payment for your sins was enough. Your worth, your value, your significance, those things are tied into my accomplishment, Jesus says, not yours. And so I ask you the question that I asked myself this week with some trepidation, is the reality of the resurrection shaping how you steward your time. If someone else observed your rhythms, would they say, now that's a woman who knows how to rest. That's a man who has put off the sort of constant producing. Or would they say, he never stops working. She never stops doing. He never stops setting himself up for the future. Is worship with God's people a regular part of your life or are you too busy to spend that time with your Creator? The resurrection shaped how the early church spent their time. The security of their position in Christ mobilized them and compelled them to go out and tell, in many cases, a hostile world about Jesus. They had this announcement. They'd seen the resurrected Savior and say they were going out telling people, planting churches, sharing the good news with everyone. And the resurrection also shaped how they spent time together. They lingered with one another. They spent time with one another without trying to outdo one another or show that uh, they were worth being loved. They, they enjoy one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. They spent time in worship, in quiet, in prayer, and in study, and in fellowship. So we've seen uh, the renewal of creation. We've seen the reversal of time. Let's look at the removal of fear. Twice the women are told, to not be afraid, once by the angel in verse 5, and a second time by the risen Christ in verse 10. Well, what would the women have been afraid of that they would need this warning? Well, a lot of things. The earthquake, that would have been a scary thing. It's been almost a decade in Southern California, and even the slightest tremor uh, can be a terrifying thing. So certainly the earthquake would have been uh, scary. Um, the, the, the presence of the angel himself, the, his uh, bright as lightning clothing would have been uh, a little unnerving, the angel sitting on this huge boulder. So there are a lot of things that they were, could have been afraid of, but perhaps their greatest fear, if we understand verse 5 correctly, is that Jesus is gone. Their Savior is missing. He's not there where they expected Him. Perhaps their greatest, their greatest fear was that their Savior had abandoned them. And I think if we're honest, we fear all the things the ladies feared. We fear for our safety. We fear what's next. We fear failure. We fear that our Savior has abandoned us, or maybe more specifically, that we have sinned against Him so many times that surely He has had enough of us and He's done with us. But the resurrection is not only objective and historical, He has risen, verse 6, it is also subjective and personal. It is the announcement of God's forgiveness. And let me show you how. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. This is the angel speaking. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, 
He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See how I have told you. Now, what does he say? He says, go tell whom? Go tell his disciples. Now, look at verse 10. Then Jesus, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell whom? Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Jesus doesn't say, go tell the disciples. Certainly, that would have been accurate and true, although a bit sterile. Jesus says, no, go tell my brothers. Now, remember who he's talking to. These are the ones who had abandoned him at his darkest hour. These are the ones who made all kinds of glorious promises to Jesus. We are with you till the end. We will never leave you. We will never forsake you. Peter himself had the the audacity to say, even if it means dying, I'll die for you. And what happened when Jesus was arrested and to be condemned? They're all gone. They ran. All these promises, all this boldness, all of that stuff out the window. They left Jesus at the very moment, his closest friends, at the very moment he needed them most. Have you ever been betrayed in that way? Someone that you trusted, someone that you counted on, someone that you put so much faith in and at your very worst time, they can't be trusted. This is the the audience that Jesus is talking to. These are the ones that he calls his brothers. What does he say? How does he refer to them? Does he say, go tell those cowards? Go tell those betrayers? Go tell those hypocrites? Go tell those fake friends? No. He says, go tell my brothers. I can't wait to see them. New Testament scholar Frederick Bruner writes, in this one word, brothers, is crammed the whole New Testament gospel of forgiveness. For Jesus could have called his cowardly disciples a lot of names that we haven't read in the Bible, but he calls them brothers. Thus, every time this part of Jesus' resurrection story is told, forgiveness is preached. Here's our final point this morning. Jesus invites betrayers, rebels, and wanderers into a familial relationship by faith in Him. Jesus takes those who have sinned against Him, those who have failed in the most spectacular ways, those who have made all the promises that they didn't fulfill, those who have wandered off, wandered away from the church, wandered away from the teaching that they've, uh, they got when they were young, and He takes those very people, the rebels, the betrayers, those who have sinned against Him, and He says, you can't out my grace. You can't outrun my pursuing presence. My forgiveness is yours if you just repent. Now, I don't know your story this morning. I know many of the stories in this room because you've shared them with me, but I do know that you, like I, have sinned against God. I do know that you, like I, have fallen infinitely short of God's glory. And I do know that you, like I, were created to be in a relationship with God, to be in a relationship with the one who made you, your creator. But that relationship has been severed because of sin, the sin of our first parents and our own sin, the way we affirm their rebellion at every turn. I don't know where maybe you see yourself in one of those categories I mentioned. Maybe you see yourself in the category of the betrayer. 
you've made promises and you prayed a prayer when you were young and maybe it was after a church service you walked forward or, or at the bedside with one of your parents and you prayed and, and you confessed your sin, but the reality is there's not a hint, there's no indication at all of any interest in the things of God. There's no desire to live for God's glory. There's no passion to love Him and to worship Him. And maybe you find yourself among the betrayers. Maybe you find yourself among the rebels and you say, you, you know what, I know how to live my life. I don't need a God to tell me what to do. I don't need a God to tell me how to live. And maybe you're one of the wanderers. You've just sort of slowly sort of gotten further and further away from God, slowly lost interest in Jesus, the one you used to call Savior. You've now find that you're just too busy. Your world is too cram-packed with other things, and you've kind of wandered away. Well, what Jesus says over and over, and he demonstrates here by calling these betrayers and these outcasts brothers, is that forgiveness is available for you. Jesus, the Savior, is tenderly and eagerly and sincerely beckoning you to come to Him. I know for a lot of people, at least on the surface, life's, life appears to be going pretty well. But when we dig a little deeper at the heart level, maybe the relational level, we see that the damage that guilt and fear can cause can be pretty devastating. I meet with people all the time, sometimes to pray with them, sometimes for lunch, sometimes over coffee just to listen, sometimes to provide biblical counsel. And one of the things that I've seen over 20 years is things are rarely the way they appear on the surface. Sometimes you see spontaneous laughter. You ever met someone who, just when they introduce themselves, even when they say their name to you, they're laughing? Sometimes spontaneous laughter, it, it often actually hides a deep anger. A posture of confidence often disguises feelings of inadequacy, insecurity, and sometimes even self-loathing. Smiles on the outside cover hearts that are hurting and alone. Couples that are sometimes most affectionate in public often fight and war when they're alone and no one is looking. These are the problems, of course, that we deal with living in a sin-cursed world, but they're exacerbated by our own guilt and our own fear particularly the fear of being abandoned by God. But Jesus makes it clear that He is eager, again, eager to welcome to Himself even those who have betrayed Him most heinously, even those who have sinned against Him repeatedly, even those who have made promise after promise that they have failed to keep, even those with sin that nobody else knows. He takes those who have failed and He invites them to become His brothers and His sisters. He takes those who have rebelled, even shaken their fist at Him, and He beckons them to become the children of God. And concerning our deepest, though perhaps most, uh, our, our unstated fear that Jesus won't be there for us, that God will remain distant and aloof to us, the resurrection speaks a word of forgiveness and calms that fear. The man of sorrows has died on a rugged cross, and when he was raised from the dead, it was God saying to all who believe, your debt is paid, your sin is gone, you, are now, you now belong to me, you are now loved by God now and forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we plead with you this morning that you would help us to believe. We pray, Lord, for those who in any one of our three services this morning who 
uh, who are running from you, those who want nothing to do with you, those who, though they would never say it, they believe that they, got, they have this thing under control. They've got their life. They don't need a God. Father, will you do the miraculous work that only you can do and bring about repentance and faith? And will you comfort those who are beaten down and afflicted? Will you encourage those who are, just feel like they're barely keeping their head above water? Will you strengthen those who are weak? And will you bring low those who are puffed up with self-righteousness and pride? Father, will you do a miraculous work by your Spirit and for your glory, taking those who have betrayed you as I have, those who have rebelled against you as I am so prone to do, and those who have wandered off that I know I would do at any moment except by your grace. Will you take those and will you give them by your Spirit, eyes to see and ears to hear, and will you bring them to a place where they see you as you truly are, a loving and merciful and gracious God, and they turn to you in repentant faith in your Son. It's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.